by Team Corker, and my name is Matt Corker, and today I have the pleasure of reconnecting with one of my great friends all the way from Paris, France, Dejus Jubilier Keats. She is a Katona yoga teacher, she is an author, and a holy cow, a proud feminist and radical when it comes to really embodying a new way of operating in the world. And it is a joy to have you on today and reconnect with you. Dejus, tell us what you did this morning. Oh, Matt, thank you so much for having me. It is such a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation all week to get to yak with you about things we care about. Uh, So this morning I was really excited when I woke up. I did some writing. I have a couple of different projects that I'm working on. So I started with some writing and then I did my practice and I put on my, my soup. I like to have broth in the morning. So my broth was percolating away as uh, I cleaned up a little around the house in preparation for my French tutor who came for two hours. Oh, wow. uh, Yeah. And then, and we parlayed. (laughs) We parlayed. So you didn't always live in Paris, France. Tell us how you, got to Paris? Like, what was the journey to get you here? It's been such a journey. It's, I think it's a a quote from Plato that says something like, you know, the thing that you hate most will be the thing you end up loving or it's something like that. And Mm -hmm. it's turned out to be true so many times in my life. Paris was the first city I ever came to in Europe and I hated it. I thought it was just garbage. I was 15. I was so intimidated. I was just this rural girl. I didn't get it. But now, 20 years after living in New York City, Paris doesn't scare me at all. (laughs) And I love it. I love the culture. I love the way it looks. I love the attitude of people. I love the personal dignity. I love the sexual sovereignty. I love looking at buildings. I love the food, the butter, of course. I'm a big fan. I love not knowing a lot of people. So I have time to myself to get lost and be in museums and write and read and drink really good coffee. Um, So I feel like Paris kind of grabbed me when I was here this fall for what I thought would just be a few days. And it was like the city just grabbed me by my belly and my heart between the thighs and said, you stay. (laughs) We have things to do. So yeah, we're we're partying. We're partying in Paris. And so New York was home for 20 years? Yes. Holy cow. And this is also where you were introduced to Katona Yoga. Yes, absolutely. Katona Yoga is very much a New York yoga. And Naveen is the creator and founder. How did you meet Naveen or were introduced to Katona? I was introduced to Naveen through a student of mine named Bill Gluck, who had been studying with me for some time, maybe six years or so at that point. And he had found out about her through like one of his high school friends, brothers. It was something very obscure. And she just opened up Katona Yoga in Manhattan. Before that, for many years, she's had a studio in Westchester, which is the county just north of New York City. But she opened up the studio in New York shortly before I came in. And 
yeah, Bill was just raving about it. And I had no interest at that point in getting involved in another yoga lineage. I already had several trainings under my belt. I thought that I was all good there. In my hubris, I missed out on an extra amount of time I could have been studying with Devine. And um, when I finally got over myself and went to the studio, I met her and, and it, for me, it was really like love at first sight. She, she is an example of a human being that I want to be when I grow up. What qualities do you see in her that you aspire to embody more? She is an extremely brilliant human being. And that brilliance is generous and, and practical. She is really open-handed with her most profound insights. She really, she, she loves people. She treats people with respect. And she, I mean, she herself is like a super hothouse, rare orchid, but she also is a gardener and looks generously on everybody who she meets. I found that to be true without, without exception. Students, teachers, people from all different backgrounds. She's a real example of a human. You know, mm. in Jewish community, we have this term of like a mensch. It's like a, like a really, like it's a good person. And um, yeah, she inspires me with her, with her generosity and with her humanity. And ditto right back at you. Tell me now, what's really interesting is that Katona yoga is quite different than a vinyasa-based practice that most North Americans become addicted to through their core power, hot yoga experience. So for people out there that have never experienced a Katona yoga class or a class with you or Naveen, what is Katona yoga? It's a really good question. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think about Katona yoga as a yoga lineage so much as I think about it as a kind of open source methodology that can play really well with all the other kids in the sandbox. So it's not a hegemonic system. It's not an orthodoxy. There are no particular Katona yoga postures. There are no Katona yoga sequences. There's no Katona yoga Bible. There's not even a Katona yoga manual. There are a lot of ideas that kind of fall under the umbrella of Katona yoga that can be applied to any kind of yoga practice you're doing, but even beyond a yoga practice. You can apply certain ideas from the esoteric dialogue that's so intrinsic to the Katona material, the metaphors. You can apply that to swimming laps or taking a hike or building a sand castle. I mean, it's really, there are a lot of kind of pithy aphorisms that create the base of what Katona yoga is. So I would call it a kind of a, philosophical milieu of embodiment concepts. And you could also think about it as being like a pantry full of different ingredients, different condiments that, you know, you could apply it to rice and beans, or you could apply it to spaghetti sauce or matzo ball soup. You know, you can use salt in lots of different recipes. Yeah, right. yoga to me is like salt. <laughs> the salt of the earth. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Now there's actual studios that yeah. host classes for people to get exposure to the material. Outside of classes, you, uh, you taught a number of classes in New York and have now shifted, correct me if I'm wrong, shifted more into classes in Paris, but also retreats and trainings. How has that shift been for you to move out of a 
one hour, one and a half hour experience into a more immersive experience? Mm. Well, I think that one of the things that's motivated me, I mean, first of all, I change my practice when I change my clothes. I change the way I eat when the seasons change. I change the way I work in the same way. It, there has to be a kind of an intervention on the status quo or I get bored and then I get bitter and then no one wants me around and I don't want to be around myself. So I'm always trying to reorganize myself, to renovate myself, uh, to reenfranchise myself so that I can get invested in what's happening afresh. Part of what I noticed happening in New York is, you know, it's just, it's late capitalism and it's the commodification of every little thing. So yoga, instead of being this vast, ancient, cross-cultural, philosophical embodiment system, becomes these little brands and these little companies that sell widgets in the form of your self-hatred. <laughs> so, I mean, my own self-hatred, one's own self-improvement project, right? So yoga becomes um, about asana only, and that asana becomes about bodily improvement and bodily perfection. This, of course, is not true for everybody. This is just a tendency that I started to notice that made me feel like, oh, wait a second, a yoga studio is no longer doing the work of a yoga school, mm. right? A yoga school, to me, is an environment, a philosophical, an emotional, a social, a physical environment for people to invest in structures of support that give them insight, that give them empowerment, and that give them epiphanies. So for me, at this point, I, I, I want to I be deep in there with the people who are already giving their lives to teaching and practicing and to, to confronting a more complex reality of what it is to be a human through this particular category of effort. You know, there are many ways that people invest themselves. But people who are deep in embodiment practices, spending a lot of time in a studio, wanting to be of service, wanting to be a full person in their own lives, but also wanting to embrace and support and touch others, those are the people who I want to spend time with going, going really deep. And um, I want to support them and I want to know them. And so that's why I've changed my focus to these deeper, longer-term relationships these more intensive trainings than the type of work that I was doing before. And I'm sure it will change again. Mm -hmm. And it brings up a really interesting point for me because I often think about the relationship a studio has with its members or its students, because what we're seeing now is that we've kind of a, not necessarily abandoned, but maybe prioritized lower on our hierarchy of needs, a religious or spiritual practice. And people are now searching for, like, how do I get that connection? Yeah. And these studios are creating classes or environments in which, you know, there is a congregation of sorts. Yes. What are your thoughts on the relationship between a student coming to a studio looking for that deeper meaning or that deeper sense of self versus someone who is dedicating their life and living in an ashram. Yeah, it's such an important point you bring up, of course. We're so thirsty for connection with each other and in a, in a somatic way to feel each other, not just to be networked, you know, through Twitter or whatever, but to really feel, oh, those <laughs> yeah. are your toes. Those are your Twittering toes. 
I mean, Naveen has this line that I quite like, which is that yoga is personal religion. And I think that's very true. And at the same time, we are herd animals and we crave the experience of being part of a symphony, being a part of something oceanic. Freud called that, you know, the oceanic feeling, that spiritual feeling, the thing that we're seeking through so many of our activities. And one of the reasons that authoritarian religious systems were undermined is because of the imbalance of power. And I think that's something that's also at play that we're finding our way with in the studio system now. If it's a system that sees its students as clients, or again, to use that term, widgets, it's like my new favorite word, then it's not going to be sustainable. A relationship based on mutuality and respect is not one that's top-down or authoritarian. And there is a possibility inside of a studio dynamic, especially when they're smaller studios. And so there's a real, uh, an organic sense of community that emerges that everyone can kind of be talking to each other and then the community can provide what people need and the people will show up for the community because it's, you know, it's like the little bird in the crocodile, you know, the one that cleans the teeth. Symbiotic, that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> that's the kind of studio we want. And the, the ashram experience, I mean, I've had it. I love it. I definitely have my asceticisms and, and my rigors. And those have a place. Everything has a place. But in this moment, I feel so strongly that that second wave feminist slogan, the personal is political. The political is personal. We're needed here. We need to show up with all of that sensitivity that is cultivated through an embodiment practice and generate and work for a culture, an ethical culture, mm. uh, a culture based on mutual respect and uh, recognition. Preach, 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 preach. The, now the title of your first book is Radical Acts of Embodiment. Yes. What is a radical act of embodiment? I think any act that turns one with real sensual curiosity towards the personal life that's emerging from inside of their own subjectivity as a kind of a knowably mystical dialogue with the universe. I think that's pretty radical. You said that the personal is political and the political is personal. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that one of the ways that trauma moves through us is this tendency to split and reify schisms of us and them, me and you, self and other, man and woman, you know, whatever these categories, these constructions are. And the more we invest inside of those splits, the more we disempower the possibility for unification. Yoga is union. Each of us, I mean, we carry an unknowable archive from the time going back to the dinosaurs. Everything that we've ever been is present in who we are. Uh, we're, we're working with a tremendous amount of social pressure and internalized social forces in addition to things like, oh, you know, gravity, that discipline and define what our subjectivity is like. I think the more we're able to interrogate and investigate that mythical unknowability of being consciousness in a living organism, of being a creature who I don't know if we chose or not to be here. A lot of people say they, that we, I, I don't know, but somehow or another we ended up here. <laughs> our, you know, our parents were crazy and then here we are. 
and now we have to deal with it. And the only thing we know for sure is that we're going to die. The whole context of our life is in the shadow of its finitude and the certainty that everything and everyone we know we will lose. So in order to turn towards that paradox and thicken our ability to loiter in that complexity, that to me is the creation of personal space. That's the creation of personal, of taking personal responsibility with what we've got in the context of all that we don't control. And from that point of personal reckoning, I think it, we, we have a, an opportunity to take, to take our power back from the things that we've split to imagine to be outside of ourselves that have power over us or split to be outside of ourselves that we try to control by being over. It's like, pause, pickle ginger all around. Who's this dude? <laughs> what's going on in my kinosphere? And once I really invest and taste and touch and smell and see who I am, then there's a possibility of looking out with a much more reparative gaze. And for me, politically, that's the way forward. We have to listen to each other. We have to touch each other. We have to see each other. Without recognition of otherness, there is no possibility of the symphony ever happening. Then it's just a cacophonous <laughs> over. Right. <laughs> that was really, you know, very articulate, I know, for the interview. But you know what I mean? Like, if we can't, if we can't recognize self and other as coming together and creating that friction that is contact and contact is noisy and noise is also song, then it just becomes belligerence. And I'm an American. So, I mean, I know it well. (laughs) (laughs) The, the notion that like learn how to play my own instrument so I can play my instrument in the orchestra has really resonated with me of like, I need to know my own habits and tendencies and perspectives and biases so that that allows me to play well with others. Yes. And you, I hope everyone listening is just flabbergasted with your so eloquent and so complex vocabulary. And if your brain hurts, know that just spend another day with Dejus and she'll rock your world even more. The interesting thing is this notion of a first nature and a second nature. And so correct me if I don't give it justice. A first nature is what we do habitually. It's what is automatic. It is what is easy. It is what may be ingrained or inherited. And our second nature are the techniques and tools that we use or develop in order to to then create a different experience for ourselves. Yes. And a different way of, I want to know how to play my violin this way and that way. I want to know how to play the violin and the drums if need be. And so what I'm really curious about is as you look at writing, you're in the middle of writing your second and third, is that correct? Second and third book. Yeah. Um, And so in the book writing and creation process, what would you describe as your first nature? Well, my first nature, I think actually is uh, kind of over. (laughs) My first nature is to learn as much as I can and to saturate myself in as many different ways of thinking as I can tolerate. I didn't write anything at all until I was 35. And that was after years spent living in ashrams, 
in ultra-Orthodox seminaries, inside of academia, like lots of different worlds with very different worldviews. And I write a thing. So my first nature is just to, to passively, well, passive-aggressively <laughs> absorb, <laughs> absorb information and learn. And so an extension of that first nature is when I'm writing now, it's just like, there's just, you know, there are words coming out in every direction and, oh, this one takes the form of a breath book. This one takes the form of an asana thing. This one's taking the form of a Haggadah for, for Passover. It's just, it's kind of moving out of me into word forms that need to then get trained into being certain kinds of waves. So the second nature has been asking for help, working with an editor, actually taking their suggestions. You know? I was going to say, how does it feel to have someone edit you? <laughs> it's, it's like Hanukkah. It's, and when I get like a new edit in my inbox, I feel like a little kid about to unwrap a present. Oh. Because it's just like whatever whatever I've been like working with for me, it's existing in this big, you know, it's like, it's like all of the ribbons came out and they're all in the, in a big bag in the middle. And then the editing process, it's like taking out the one ribbon and making it into a beautiful bow. And, and now it exists as its own thing. Mm. So it's really been, it's been tremendously gratifying. And also, you know, I save drafts of everything. So I always know what it was before. And then the third nature piece for me has really been choosing, okay, not everything is going to be for everything. It's not going to be the one dejus tome that I produce and then I die. You know, it's going to be smaller projects and, and imperfect projects, you know, things that later on I'm going to go, oh my God, I can't believe I put that out there. But it had, those, are, those are the first pancakes. The first pancakes are always garbage, you know? They really and are. <laughs> more sophisticated pancakes with chocolate chips and with goji berries and fresh maple syrup, you know, but you have to start somewhere. Mm. So now I think a big piece of my practice is allowing multiple pots to simmer and to know what I want to put in each pot. So we have books on the go. For those people who are listening that are keen to learn more about Katona Yoga, but more specifically how to practice and get more versed in the metaphor and mythology behind all of this, where do we find you? Where do we get to play with Dejus? Oh, definitely. Please come play with me, but also <laughs> play well with others because there are other people who have totally different perspective and it, it's really enlivening to get into those frictive dialogues. Katona Yoga Center has a website that consolidates all of what's happening with Katona Yoga in the big wide world. And there are a lot of free resources there. You can listen to Naveen, you can read things, you can look at images, a lot of great content there. Kat Valayan, one of Canada's own, has a book that she put out called Yoga is Origami, which has a lot of wonderful Katona Yoga material in it. My own book, Radical Active Embodiment, is now available on Kindle. Ooh. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm in Europe for the most part, but come play with me. You can find me on, on the internet under my name and um, on Instagram under my name. 
Keep That's it where simple. I am. <laughs> <laughs> what is your next retreat or training that we need to know about? I'm doing a training this weekend in Paris. Maybe that's up a little soon. And, I, <laughs> and at the end of the month, I'll be in Germany. The, the next one I think we can really plan on will be Zurich, which will be the end of May, early June. I'm really excited about this one. It's my third year in Zurich. The community is awesome. And we're really going to go deeper into, into languaging because one of the things that I think is so unique about Katona Yoga is the way it encourages the personalities of teachers to really shine through and to be empowered to find their own language, to speak from their own experience, to integrate all of their practices, to be the teachers that they actually are, you know, mm -hmm. rather than trying to emulate somebody else. So we're really going to focus on that this spring in Zurich. So if you can, come on by. <laughs> okay, we're going to wrap it up here. The last question we ask all of our podcast guests is what is making your heart beat faster? So today or this week, what is making your heart beat faster, Dejas? Well, it's something very, very simple, but it's profound. It is spring in Paris mm. and the flowers are coming through the earth the buds are happening on the trees and every day you feel and see and smell more and more that the sap is rising, the warmth is coming, everything that's been generated in quietude and in silence is coming up to play. And it gives me this palpable feeling of excitement and, and joy and eagerness to connect. So, Spring always does it for me. And this, this first spring in Paris, it's also like a month earlier than New York. So I feel like I got away with something incredible. <laughs> um, what's making my heart beat faster these days is my husband, Chad, is preparing one of his concerts that is coming up. And Ooh. in the preparation process, what actually that means for me is that I get to hear like classical operatic music in my apartment, whether, whether he's like in the shower getting ready in the morning or whether he's sitting at the keyboard and with his headphones on and I can't hear anything that he hears, but I get to hear the production that he, of his practice. And it is just such a joy to, to hear his voice. It's kind of like a, a version of spring. It's like, oh, there's music in the halls. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that. I'm gonna listen to some opera and think about you and my little my little Parisian nest. <laughs> oh man. Well Dejas, you have you continue to be an inspiration and someone who continues to help me refine how I show up in the world. And I really appreciate um, you sharing your insights and wisdom with us today. And we'll link to all of your uh, website and Instagram and everything so people can follow along your adventures as well down below. So thanks so much, Dejas. Thanks for listening to this edition of Uncorked. This is Matt, and I wanted to let you know that if you're looking to get away this May long weekend, May 18th to 20th, Team Corker and Movement 108 are hosting our annual retreat, AWOL, a weekend of leisure, in a beautiful cabin in Mount Baker. 
So come ready to relax, enjoy some time outside in nature, come sweat with us, and take advantage of optional individual and group activities while dining on great food surrounded by great people. This will truly leave you feeling rested and recharged. It's the weekend that gives you an actual break. It's like the vacation that doesn't need a vacation. So sign up now by heading over to our Instagram at the Corker Co. for more information. Thanks again and see you next week.